the world is a recognition that there's a whole huge system of humanity that's in rebellion against God with a, a variety of values and voices. Um, some of those voices may be political. Some might be in entertainment and singing. Some might be writers. Some might be philosophers. But a variety of voices that are not submitted to God that speak to us on a regular basis. And of course, unseen, uh, unseen enemy, which would be the devil or Satan and evil spirits. So you're landing in the midst of a series, and I'm the third speaker in this series. And so good morning to you. I just want you to know where you are. Uh, our starting point as a congregation is that Jesus is the Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is ascended to the right hand of God. And he's sitting there until the Lord puts all of his enemies under his feet as a footstool. And so we're going to start for the next, over the next 45 minutes to an hour, God willing, closer to 45 minutes. But we take teaching the, the Word of God quite seriously because we believe that it's through the Word of God that we learn more about God, we learn about more about Christ. We also learn about our identity as we're attached to Christ. Um, so um, if you'll join me, we're going to take a moment to pray. Father, we just thank you for all the riches of your grace in Jesus Christ. We would not be alive spiritually if it were not for the work of your son, Jesus. Our sins had us dead. But your son, he was crucified for our sin and he was risen from the dead, offering new life to all who believe. Father, as we join together as a congregation to hear your word, myself included, I pray that you, Lord Jesus, would speak to your people. I pray that you would work in all of our hearts to be submitted to you, to walk in love, and to make effort toward unity, and to use our gifts for the building of the body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, February is Black History Month. I don't know if you guys were aware of that or celebrate it. All right, there you go. And I often like to reflect where I have personally come from as, where, as well as where black people have come from. Um, I think about my maternal grandmother. <clears throat> She went to Miners College, or Miners Teachers College, which is now on the campus of Howard University. And um, she trained to become a teacher in the segregated school system. And she taught um, in the segregated schools down in St. Mary's County. And I also think about my grandfather, my father's father, who went to Howard University in HU. Yeah, that's right. He graduated from Howard University, I believe it was in 1948, with a business degree. And he worked, went to work on Capitol Hill. We got any Capitol Hill folks here? No? <laughs> Wrong crowd. <laughs> he went to work on Capitol Hill. And the only job that he could get, because it was 1948 and segregation was very much in effect, was as a clerk. And so his supervisor and most of the people that were supervising and above him were all, for the most part, were high school graduates. And so he wrote to his congressperson asking if he could have an opportunity to exercise the skills in a role that allow him to use his skills rather than being a page, delivering things um, across, across the hill. His request was denied. So I can look back and I can think about the time of segregated schools or where opportunity was limited, and I can look today and say, praise God, we've come some way, right? Amen. Now, of course, if you turn on the news, <laughs> and if you're not living, you know, in a cave, you can still see that there's a ways to go, right? And it, it actually is kind of disturbing to me um, that there's so much that still needs to go, um, needs to improve, there's so much that needs to move forward in terms of how we treat people in, in this country. But I can look back and see that there has been growth. Now, I don't know where we're going in, in our country. I, I don't necessarily believe that the Declaration of Independence or the Constitutions or the promises held in those documents will necessarily come to fulfillment one day. I, I don't have any guarantee of that at all. I hope for it in a wishful kind of a way. And... 
I can support it and I can work towards it, but I have no idea whether that's going to happen or not. I don't know. Just when I thought things were fine and smartphones come out and just uncover all sorts of ugliness, right? And then we see to the, the commonwealth, the state below, that the governor was in a picture, that he wasn't in a picture, and you know, I won't bore you with all that, but I'm like, there's so far we have to go. And I don't know if we're going to get there, honestly, as a country. There's just no way of knowing. And we can pray and we can hope. Now, I mention all this not to, you know, exalt um, one group over another, but because it connects, I believe, with our text. We're going to take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. But before we get there, I want to actually have you think about the church in Ephesus and where it came from and who Paul, that is the writer of the letter of Ephesians, who they're, they're writing to. Now, I'm going to be using the NIV if you want to follow along. I think it's close enough to the SV, the, te- the Bibles in your pews, that you'll be able to follow along just fine. So now, if you look in Acts, which is a book about the apostles and how they spread the gospel, you come to chapter 18, and, and Paul established a church in a town no- named Corinth, and then he goes to Ephesus, and he starts reasoning with some Jews in the synagogue. And then he's only there for a very little time, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to go. And they say, would you stay? Well, if it's God's will, I'll come back. So Paul leaves Ephesus, only having been in the temple, uh, excuse me, the synagogue for a very short time. And he leaves two friends of, his, uh, friends of his along, Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila. And while they're there, there's a man who's um, from North Africa, um, Apollos, it says that he is a Jew from um, Alexandria, which is in, in, in North, which is in Egypt, and he was powerful in scriptures. And so he comes, um, he's in Ephesus, and he's explaining the gospel as best as he knows, but he's got some things a little bit off, right? He's only familiar with John the Baptist, and, and so Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila, they hear him, and they take him aside, and they kind of school him a little bit. They are in Ephesus, and then he goes on to another city. After a time, Paul comes back and we're, comes back to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, if you want to look at it. And he begins to preach to 12 guys who, who have an incomplete understanding of the gospel. And he explains to them the gospel about, and we're going to talk about that in, this, in the context of our time together. And he explains the gospel to them, and they respond to the gospel, and they receive the Spirit of God. And then in chapter 19, there is also this mention of a miracle that occurs uh, where um, demons are cast out of a particular man. And then as you press on in Acts chapter 19, you have a man in in Ephesus named Demetrius. He's a silversmith. And uh, Ephesus was a pagan town, and so they worship various gods. And so so he was concerned, uh, Demetrius was concerned that his business was being dug into because as Paul was preaching the gospel, people that were worshiping idols were throwing these idols away and they were stopping to buy physical idols. And so there's a riot that starts in Ephesus. It's a big one. Um, At the end of that, um, um, Paul, he leaves Ephesus and he goes on his way and he continues his missionary journeys. And so then he comes back, but he doesn't come all the way back to Ephesus. If you look in chapter 20 of Acts, he comes back to a point, um, the name of the, the location, I think it's Miletus. Uh, he meets and he calls for the leaders, the elders of Ephesus to come to meet him at this, at this town. He doesn't want to go back to the church. And he tells them, essentially, you're never going to see me again. And he tells them... I, your blood is not on my hands. I have spoken to you all of God's word. I've spoken to you about God's grace clearly and fully. You have it. So now, leaders, watch yourself carefully and watch after your flock. Be careful to watch after them. Knowing that there are going to be men that arise up, even among your own number, and they're going to distort the teaching of Scripture, and they're going to try to draw people after themselves. So you watch. Amen. So that's our prep for us getting into Ephesians. So let's, if we could, turn to Ephesians chapter 1.
I'm trying to give you a bird's eye view of Ephesians prior to Ephesians 4. So when we get to Ephesians 4, you kind of know what's going on. So Ephesus, as we know as a church, it's located in in modern-day Turkey. And, and Paul, he's an apostle. He's one who's been sent by God, and he's preached to them, and he's writing back to them. And at the time, he's in prison. He's, he's imprisoned in Rome, and he's writing to them. So as you can see, he writes, if you look at the first verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He has a sense of his identity, and his identity is connected to Christ and being in the will of God. And he wishes them grace and peace, and he's writing to God's holy people, to God's saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And I want to pay attention a little bit, and I'm going to actually read this, is a, a hymn or a poem that's full of truth that is in verses 3 through 14. And this is wonderful. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I'm going to stop right there. So this letter, he wants us to praise God. He wants us to praise God the Father because the God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. If you need a spiritual blessing, it's going to come through the, from the Father through Jesus. Praise the Lord. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So one of the riches that we have received is the fact that we have been chosen by God in Christ Jesus before the creation of the world. And that's amazing. We serve a God who's not limited by time at all in what he sees and hears and knows. And you can look at Psalm 139 and you can see that God knows everything. He knows how we were knit together. He knows our thoughts from afar off. He knows us, and he knew us before creation. And if you're in Christ Jesus, he chose you. You are chosen, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus. In love, it goes on, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. So I'm giving an overview here. God has adopted you in Christ Jesus. That means that you're more than a servant, but that you're a child of God himself. He's adopted you. Now, I don't know if you've heard John 3, 16, one of the most famous scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? Jesus is God's only begotten son. But through Jesus, God adopts people and makes them his children. So in Christ Jesus, you are chosen and you are adopted. And why are you adopted? It is to the praise of his glorious grace. The grace of God is glorious. His undeserved kindness, his mercy, he lavishes lavishes it on his children and upon his people. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. He gives this grace to us freely. There is no cost on our side to receive this grace. He bears the cost himself in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The idea of redemption is buying something back. In this culture, the idea would have been someone in slavery and someone buys them out of slavery. So in Christ Jesus, we are chosen, we are adopted, and we are redeemed. We are purchased out of slavery. We are redeemed through his blood. That's the cost that God paid. That's the cost that Christ Jesus paid. And it says the forgiveness of sins. In Christ Jesus, our sins are forgiven. In accordance with the riches of God's grace. Don't sleep on the riches of God's grace. He's lavished them on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, earlier I made reference to the progress in this country in terms of 
ethnic relations. And I say, I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't. I hope, wishfully. But here we have this promise in Ephesians that in Christ, when time reaches its fulfillment, God in Christ Jesus will bring unity to all things. All things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So everything that you see that is wicked, wrong, twisted, divided, messed up, in the fullness of time, God will bring all things under Christ, all things. And he will bring all things into unity. That is in submission to God's will. Praise the Lord. <laughs> so there's so much here to, to look at. Uh, I, it's absolutely amazing. I do want to take a look at the next section here, which is verses 15 through 23, where Paul gives a thanksgiving and a prayer. And, and I can't go through it all, but I want to start at verse 18, where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. So Paul is saying that he hopes that we have an understanding given by the Spirit to know the hope to which God has called us. That means God has a future for you if you are in Christ Jesus. And he wants you to know it. He doesn't want you to walk around, hey, my sins are forgiven, and not have an idea of where we're going. We've come from some place, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, and we are going somewhere. So one of the prayers that Paul has is, I pray that you have a heart that sees where you're going to. And he says, the riches of his inheritance in his holy people. So God in Christ Jesus has an inheritance for us. There is something coming down that we can't even imagine, right? Now, we know that in God in Christ Jesus, that he's going to bring every evil to an end, right? We know that in Christ Jesus, that our bodies will be, re be redeemed, that we will be raised up and have a body like Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. This is our inheritance, and it's much more than I could begin to explain here. This inheritance, Paul writes in verse 18 and 19, is in his holy people, and he wants us to know the incomparably great power for us who believe. That's to say that God has a power source for us, right? It would be a shame if you're set free from slavery but then you have no agency, no ability, no power to do anything from that point on. In Christ Jesus, we have not just been set free, but we've also inherited a power to be able to do all the things that God has called us to do. And that's the presence of the Holy Spirit. That power is the same as the mighty strength he has he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is, in, that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So I want you to look back at verse... 20. It mentions that he's been that Christ has been seated above in the heavenly realms, verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked. I just want to thank, thank the pastor for reading from Job chapter 1. We have a picture that there are unseen spirits. Job refers to them as sons of God or as angels, and included in that group that come before God is Satan himself. So it would seem that, that Christ has been lifted up, not just upon, uh, above all the evils of human society, but above all the evils in unseen forces. He is the Lord. And he's not Lord just now, in this present age, but in the age to come. So praise the Lord. So when you're thinking about 
where you're going to, it's good to, to remind yourself of where you've come from. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, our pastor preached from this not long ago. And it says in verse 1, as for you, that's talking to his audience, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This was, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is a great scripture for understanding our spiritual warfare. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So, brothers and sisters, this is where we came from, right? In sin, gratifying our flesh, listening to the world, and under the, the influence of the spirit of the power of the air. The kingdom the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's where we came from. But, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead in transgressions. I want you to know something. Paul, in verse 1 and verse 5, says we were dead in transgressions. When you say something twice, you can assume that you mean it. He's saying you were dead dead. Dead people cannot save themselves. So verse 6, and God raised us up, presumably from the dead. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus, you're no longer dead, but you're alive. And in Christ Jesus, you are raised. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And this verse is, they never grow old. For it is by grace, that is completely undeserved kindness. It's the nastiest, ugliest situation you can imagine and someone showing kindness and mercy in that situation. For it is by grace you have been saved. You were in danger before God in terms of his wrath and his judgment, but it's by grace you've been saved by judgment. And how did this occur? It was not by your performance. It was not by your ethnic group, but you were saved through faith. And it's not the amount of faith or the quality of faith. It's who you had faith in. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. We're saved by grace through faith, and that faith didn't even come from us. That itself is a gift from God. Praise the Lord. Every spiritual blessing has been given to us in Christ Jesus not by works, so no one can boast. In verse 10, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. I love this expression, created. The idea is there's something unformed or not even existing, being formed or being shaped or coming into existence. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So now we've received all these blessings. Now there is a response that we need to have, right? Now, brothers and sisters, I'm sure most of what I've said, for if you've been in the church for a while, nothing here is new, right? It's good to go over this ground and remind ourselves and refresh ourselves. Unfortunately, this is where a lot of people stop. They stop with personal salvation. And praise God, I know I need grace, so I'm thankful for salvation all day long. But the picture that God has for the Christian is bigger than the Christian. Don't just think of your salvation in a selfish way. I got mine. No. This salvation is not just for you. It's for a people. You can read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, how Jesus will save his people from their sins. 
He's a good shepherd who calls out his own from all the peoples of the world and forms one flock. He is the good shepherd who calls his people together. So now in the context of Ephesians, you're looking at something fairly new that's happening in history. If you look at your Bible, two-thirds of it are written before Jesus. And they're primarily addressing the Jewish people. They're not addressing you and me at all, for the most part. We have these great promises that are given to the Jewish people because they have the scriptures and, and people outside of the Jewish people before the New Testament, for the most part, did not have scriptures. So they would have had this promise that was given after the fall that, that the seed of the woman, that is, seed of the woman would crush the serpent. The very first gospel promise in, in the Bible. They would have known about Abraham and how God gave a promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. They would have known all about the Mosaic Covenant and how God rescued his people from slavery under Egypt and set them free. They would have they would have known all the sacrifices that were in the Old Testament that look forward to us a greater sacrifice. Because those sacrifices, the fact that they were not good enough shows up again and again because the sacrifices had to be done again and again and again. And they pointed forward to the great sacrifice of Christ himself. They would have not heard the promise of David about how David would have a son who would found a kingdom that would last forever. So now here in the church, here in Ephesus, you have a mixture of people that are Jewish and people like most of us, I assume, that are not Jewish. And the Bible uses a word to describe people that aren't Jewish, and that is Gentile, right? I'm a Gentile. Are you a Gentile? Yeah. We might have one or two Jewish people in the house. No? So we're all Gentiles here. So when you come to chapter 2, Verse 31, excuse me, 11, the apostle begins to write about this issue between Gentiles and Jewish people. Verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise God. We were very far. Not only dead, but ignorant of the fact that we were dead. Ignorant of the promises of God of his Savior. But now the gospel here in in Ephesus has gone beyond the Jewish people, and now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And verse 14 says, For he himself, that is Christ, he himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What is this barrier between? Is it between us and God? In this circumstance, the barrier that's being described is the barrier between peoples. You could just look through all our history, uh, one tribe and against the other tribe, the North against the South, Koreans versus the Chinese or the Japanese. Wherever you look, you see that there's ethnic tensions. In our own country, there's been a history of ethnic tensions between a variety of groups. But here it is in the gospel, Christ making peace between Jew and Gentile. And I want to suggest this application here, and you'll see that's teased out and and demonstrated, that this peace is not just for Jew and Gentile, it's for us. And for all believers across the world, of the variety uh, variety of ethnic groups that there are. Now, we think ourselves as big stuff, but the United States is maybe 4.4% of the world population. So we're not much of the world population. I mean, if we were to disappear, I'm sure people would notice because we're so loud. But in terms of numbers, we're fairly small. The majority of the world is 
Chinese, uh, from India, Indonesia, Nigeria, I mean, Japan. There's all these large countries. And all of us that are in Christ Jesus, all of us in Christ Jesus were one. It's because Christ Jesus has destroyed that barrier. Now, in this setting, verse 15, between Jews and Gentiles, Christ has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. That is the Mosaic law that was specific to the Jewish people. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So before I was saying people just stop at hand, thank God I'm saved, praise the Lord, you're saved. But God is in the business of forming one new humanity, his body, the church. He is not just about having a bunch of individuals doing their thing in their Bibles. He's about building a church. Do you remember when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave various answers. And Jesus said, well, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And and Jesus responds, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father revealed this to you. And then he said, I'm going to build my church. And so God and Jesus is building his church. Consequently, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. The foundation of this building, we're now being referred to as a building, is Christ Jesus. He is the foundation. And on top of that, as we're going to talk about a little bit more, the apostles and prophets. Now, the prophets in the Jewish scriptures, in the Old Testament, they told about the Messiah to come. And the apostles, they witnessed, were eyewitnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are built upon Christ Jesus, the person. But we're also very much built on scripture as well. We are built on the promises that God gave to Israel of a Messiah to come. We are built on sure promises that are found in, found in the Bible. We are also founded upon the eyewitness account that is reliable of Christ rising from the dead. Amen. We have a sure foundation, and we are being built together on this foundation. So then if you go to chapter 3 and... and I'm not going to go through it all, <laughs> thankfully, right? Paul takes the time to actually kind of like revel in the fact that he's been called by God to preach to Gentiles in particular. And he pulls out that, he pulls out this in verse 4 of chapter 3. He says, in reading this, and you will be able to understand my, uns- my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed, revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. In the Old Testament, the Jews had that promise, but now this promise has been extended to all who will believe. If you look to Christ... In his death and his resurrection, you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven, and you will be adopted as a child. If you move down to the latter part of chapter 3, then Paul begins to pray. And he gives thanks for all the, the riches that are found in Christ Jesus. And if you take a look here at verse 17, the second half of that verse, he begins by saying, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now that's praying. He's praying that we be established and rooted in love. Do not think 
Christian maturity is about you just filling your head with Scripture. Do not think that being a good Christian is just attending Bible study and attending church. Do not think that that is the end goal. His prayer is that we together may grasp this love that surpasses knowledge. He wants us to be rooted in this in our minds and our hearts and our souls and experientially to know the love of God in Christ Jesus, to know it. Do you know what it is to be loved by a parent, a spouse, a friend? Just to know it and to feel it. This is what Paul is praying for us, to know objectively and subjectively God's great love for us in Christ Jesus. Amen. So now we're at our text for the morning. (laughs) You turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So with the first verse of chapter 4 in Ephesians, Paul is making a shift in his emphasis in his letter. So far, he's been writing about the glories of God, the glorious grace of God, the glorious grace of God in Jesus Christ. He's been talking about this mystery that's now been revealed about forming one body of Gentiles and Jews. And so now he wants the readers and for us to respond to this truth. And he tells us how. He says he's a prisoner for the Lord. He's someone, he's someone who's been in prison for the sake of the gospel. And so now he's giving this urgent, say, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. One of the commentaries I read is like, this is really serious. It's like, you got it, do it, make it happen. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And what calling would that be? That would be to be holy and blameless. That would be to be adopted as a child. That would be to be redeemed. That would be to be filled with the Spirit of God. That would be to be placed in the body of Christ within the church. This is coming on the heels. This is coming on the heels of his discussion of forming one body between Jew and Gentile. Now, a lot of us, when we come to the Bible, we read this and we think as individuals. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Someone can immediately think, okay, I need to get myself together. I need to stop cussing. I need to, read, I need to pray my Bible. Uh, pray. I need to read my Bible. I need to go to church. Um, I need to stop that. I definitely need to stop that. I need to start doing this. And people think on an individualistic basis, right? But here Paul is writing to a church. This church actually might have been a circular letter, so it might have been to multiple churches. And so he's saying to churches... I urge you, not just as individuals, but as churches, to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You, brothers and sisters, you have not been just called as an individual, but you have also been called together within the universal church of Christ Jesus and planted as the Spirit is determined in a local church. That is God's plan. So then Paul begins to write to us how this is supposed to, how do we live a life worthy of the calling as not just individuals, but as a church? How do we live worthy of this calling? Well, he tells us how. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Completely. Humble is a lowliness of mind and attitude. What comes to my mind when I, when I read this is, is on the last night of, of Jesus before he was crucified, when he was having dinner with his disciples, this is recorded in John chapter 13, he gets up from, the den- he gets up from dinner and takes off his outer clothing and he puts on a towel that's associated with slaves and servants. And he gets down on his knees and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. He is the Lord 
He is the teacher, yet he's washing feet. Now, most of you don't want to wash anyone's feet, and, and that would definitely would have been true in this society as well. They would have viewed it, viewed it as beneath, beneath them to do that. That would be a task for a servant or a slave. So when I read this, be completely humble, I'm getting the picture here that is brothers and sisters together, living life together, living a life together that's worthy of the calling, that we're willing to care for one another and get down low and serve one another. Be humble and gentle. And, and here's the idea of you've got strength, maybe like a horse, but it's under control and it's gentle and can be led guidedly. It's, it's not weakness, it's power under control. And the idea here is that sometimes you're willing to give up your rights. I'm not saying you always do. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying there's not a room for speaking the truth in situations, but you're just not getting in flustered over every single thing. You're not always on the edge learning for someone to dish you or slight you or undermine you. Everything doesn't have to be responded to. When someone immature says something, you just recognize, wait a second, that's my, that's my brother, that's my sister, they're in Christ Jesus, they're still growing just like I am. I'm going to let this one go. I'm not saying you do that all the time, but I'm saying there's a lot of stuff we should just, more than a little bit needs to be just let it go. John the Apostle writes about this in 1 John chapter 5. Is if you see a person in a sin that doesn't lead to death, pray for them. Let it go and pray for them. Now, of course, you can read in, in, in Matthew 18, if someone sins against you, go with them privately, right? Talk to them in private. You don't have to broadcast it. You don't have to tell, you don't have to tell sister, sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so, well, come and pray for me, this situation, this person offended me, and just spread it all over, the way, all over the place, ruin their reputation. Why do that? Go talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, Jesus says. And if they don't listen to you, take two or three others. And if the two or three others don't receive, then to the church, presumably that local church, right? So there's a progression, right? We're dealing with serious sin that needs to be dealt with in a way that starts from private and growing in terms of numbers. But a lot of stuff, brothers and sisters, we just need to let it go. I'm going to tell you sometimes when I'm hungry, sometimes when I'm tired, sometimes when I'm well-fed and I'm fully awake, <laughs> I can be offensive. And honestly, you can too. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. In light of the calling that we've received, which includes the infilling of the Spirit of God. So we're not doing this in our own strength, brothers and sisters, right? We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're to be completely humble and gentle, low, with a low, low spirit, a low heart, a gentleness that's where you're keeping your strength under control, willing to let your rights go. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Being patient means waiting on someone. If you have kids, you know it's going to take them a, a period of time to grow, right? Well, the same thing is true of you adults and me as well. It's going to take us a time for us to grow to the maturity, the fullness of what it means to be like Christ. We need to be patient with one another in love. The idea of here is long-suffering. Some people don't change overnight, okay? Just because they irritate you because of the way they are doesn't mean they're going to change overnight. And some of the change that needs to happen is with you. So you learn to let stuff, just let it go. That's such and such. That's my sister. That's my brother. I'm going to pray for them. And I'm going to trust the same guy that's working stuff out of me it's going to work out stuff in their hearts and minds. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. All of this is in love. I want you to keep your eyes out for that expression in love as we push through this scripture. Now, he's been giving all these exhortations because he's coming to a point here. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
So, if you guys, I mentioned John before. Jesus himself, when he prays for disciples, that would be much later on than from him, including us. Jesus in John 17 prays, my prayer is not for them alone, that is for his disciples he had then. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that is the gospel about Jesus, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. Now I want you to catch this. Jesus is saying here in this prayer, communicating that when we are one, that when we are unified, that the world will know that God has sent him. You catch that? The reality is that we are so diverse in age, in ethnic group, politics, philosophy, um, stage of life, interests, passions, I'm sure I would disagree with you guys on a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> and I'm sure you guys would disagree with me on a whole lot of things. I'm sure there's some ways that I live my life that makes, makes some of you go, huh? And I'm sure I'm going to look at you guys and you guys are going to look at one another like, really? You voted for who? Really? You're going to eat that way? Really? You're going to be a vegan? <laughs> really? You're going to eat that way? Eating all that meat? Don't you know it kills you? There's all sorts of differences. And some of those spill over into ethnic groups, right? Those differences where there's a hidden hostility or just a veneer of civility, where we're polite and kind, but don't actually treat one another like brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And the Lord Jesus' prayer on the night before he was crucified was that we would be one. It's in our real unity, not in our fake unity, but in our real unity that the power of God is demonstrated to the extent that, the, that people look and say, wait a second, these Christian folks are starting to get together now. What's going on? How is that even possible? How are people from the Midwest able to get with people in Detroit? Well, Detroit is the Midwest, but... How, you catch what I'm saying. How do these various people get along together? And they start adding people from other countries. How do these people, how do these people unite on this same message? Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Brothers and sisters, you have to work at it. Some people here may not feel fully included. You better work at it. And if you're hanging on the outside thinking that someone's going to come to you, you got to work to press in. It's both ways. Everyone's got to work at it. Sometimes there'll be misunderstandings. We've got to work at it. We've got to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And it says, through the bond of peace, commentary I was looking at says this this preposition through could also be in, better, better read, in the bond of peace. Brothers and sisters, we're bonded, we're connected, we're united, we're put together because of the peace that Christ has won for us. That is our foundation, brothers and sisters. In peace, we've been saved. You have peace with God because of the blood of Christ Jesus. Because of this bond of peace, verse 4, and there is one Lord, there is one body and one spirit. Now, we're one congregation down the street. this Macedonia, this Capitol Hill. But here Paul is talking about a universal church that just kind of pulls back from the local situation. And there's no, there's no issue with having an appreciation for your ethnic group, not, not whatsoever, none whatsoever. But not to such an extent that you don't first and foremost see that this thing is bigger than your ethnic group. There is one body, and it includes people that are very much not like you. 
This is God's doing. There is one body and there's only one Holy Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, our hope is the return of our Lord Jesus. Verse 5, and there's one Lord. There's not one Jesus for the Korean church, one Jesus for the Indian church, one Jesus, one Lord for the Caribbean church, one Savior for the black church, one Messiah for the Hispanic church. No, there is one Lord and one faith. And we enter through one baptism. We are one. It may not look like it all the time, but here Paul is making an assertion. He's saying, you are one, now work to maintain it. Work to show it. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, our God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. This is God's doing, the Father's doing. So this is our unity, brothers and sisters. But I also want to point out something. Our unity doesn't mean we can't be different. There's unity, and there's also diversity. Look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And if you would, look also at verse 16. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love. We've heard that before, in love, as each part does its work. So verse 7 and verse 16, we see each part or each one. And in verse 7, it says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So when it comes to salvation, we've all received the very same grace of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. But here Paul is writing about a different kind of grace. And this is the grace that, through the Spirit of God, gifts us individually. Each of us, by the Spirit, has been endowed with one or multiple spiritual gifts for the benefits of the body. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. The same idea is also seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Spirit, the Spirit gives gifts as he determines it. Back here to verse 8. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. This is a quote from Psalm 68. Uh, which was read at the top of our service this morning, which begins with, let God arise and his enemies be scattered. And here the image is of a king, he's gone out to war, or God has gone out to war, and now he's coming back home, to, back to his throne. So the idea is that he's returning and ascending to his throne because he first descended. Do you follow me? He's going up, because he first went down to fight, and now he's going back. He ascended on high, and he took many captives. So he's coming back a winner. He's won. And it says he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So there's, more, there's a lot that could be said about this verse. It's very interesting. But what I do want to point out here is that this, these captives that Christ has taken are us, brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus has humbled himself and entered, entered into our world to bring about salvation. I began in, in, in my mother's womb, as did all of you. But Christ is the very word of God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And he became human flesh and entered into our world. So he was already Lord, and he descended, and in his work on the cross, he's won many captives, brothers and sisters, and that's you and me. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So when a king back in these days would win a battle, they would have treasures and spoils, and they would give them out 
to his people. He would share the bounty of the wealth that had been won from war. It wasn't something he kept for himself. So here's this picture of Jesus winning, coming back with captives, that's us, and then giving gifts to his people. Amen. Verse 9, what does, it, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the universe. This idea of filling the universe means control over the universe. It's not like Jesus is a, a liquid or a substance that somehow fills in that kind of a way. Though he, though he is, though the Lord God is omnipresent, the idea here of filling is the idea of control. He has ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Verse 11, so Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers to equip his people for works of service. So brothers and sisters, you've been placed in a body and God has given gifts to his body, not just here, but throughout the world. And these, if you look at all these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, these are all folks that are gifted verbally to build up the body. And so God has put these folks in the church not to be superstars, not because they're the only ones who can do what they do, but he's put them there to equip his people for works of service. So brothers and sisters, we need to respond to God's grace and do works of service. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so the people that God puts in our midst are to equip us so that we can do good works. So you wonder why, wise pastor, this, talk to me about this. It's to equip you for good works. It's not just to make you fat off of knowledge and spiritual feel-good moments. There's nothing wrong with any of that, by the way. You can feel good in the church. You can learn and grow. But the idea is that you would be matured in love and you would begin to serve. You would serve within the church and then you would go outside the church and make Christ known. They're called to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity. Unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. The idea here of unity of faith, faith can be seen a couple of different ways. It's our, our collective trust in Christ Jesus which is valid. We all walk by faith. The righteous live by faith. Or the idea of a faith being a body of teaching. That we're all in agreement about the facts about who God is and what God has done in Christ Jesus. That's a lot of unity when you consider the variety of churches that are in this world. And in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So this is how Paul states it positively. He positively states he wants us to be one. He's given us gifts. He's given us every person. He's given everybody a gift. Everyone's received grace. In addition to everyone receiving grace, he's also given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to build us up. Positively, he's given us a picture of what this looks like. Mature. A mature person. The full measure of Christ. Do you have that picture in your mind? One person. So now we have a contrast when we come to verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants. So now we go from a mature person to an infant. We have someone that's stable to now. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. So now we have this idea of some kind of opposition. This idea that there are false teachers in the world. When you listen to music, you are listening to voices that carry values. When you go to school, when you are involved in political discussion, when you are at any kind of conversation or interaction, there are values that are assumed. And many of these are neutral. But those that are in opposition 
those voices contained in music or in your profession or in politics or in philosophy or in science, those kinds of things that undermine the lordship of Christ, those false teachers when they come to, to us, the Lord doesn't want us to be shaken by these things. You know, I don't know if you've had this experience of someone coming to your door with a false religion and they start telling you something and they ask you a question you don't know the answer to. Well, God doesn't want us to be shaken by false teachers. He wants us to watch out for false teachers. In fact, God has given us pastors and teachers to help us to be prepared to deal deal with these so that we do not give in to deception. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So that's where we're going, brothers and sisters. We are going to become becoming more like Christ. From him, verse 16, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So when most people think about growing spiritually, they they think about all these things they should do by themselves. I should go off by myself, be alone, I should read this, I should pray. And all those kinds of things have their value in their place. And Paul here, later in Ephesians, will talk about things that individuals should do. The first thing I want you to see is that when Paul is thinking about us growing and maturing and battling, he's not first thinking about us as individuals. He's thinking about us as a body, working together, building itself up. It's not a bunch of spectators coming on a Sunday morning to get something good to feel good to take into the week. It's a group of people coming together as a family with the intent of using their gifts, whatever they may be, however humble or quiet they might might seem, to build up the body. When we come together, it doesn't matter what building we're in, whether we're here or at the house or, or various Fellowship Fridays, we come together as the body not just to receive, and amen, you should receive, but you come also to give, to build your brother and sister up. That might mean there might be opportunities also for formal service as well, like watching the children, being an usher, volunteering to help out when we do communion. This this idea of a, a teen lunch with teen girls is absolutely wonderful. Whatever it might be, that we would be active in using what we have for the benefit of the church. And when we are one, as Jesus, we looked at in John 17 says, and when we are one, it is a demonstration that God sent Jesus into the world. When the spirit is working in us, animating us, equipping us and moving us to give to one another, to love one another, to serve one another, to bear with one another, and becoming mature and not going back and forth, then that's a testimony of Christ's lordship and his divinity. So I chose this passage for our spiritual warfare because we often think of so much about ourselves as individuals, and as important as that might be, Our fight is together. We must link up shield to shield. We must look out for the ones that are straggling. We must be patient with those that need patience. And we've got to learn how to be kind and gentle and self-controlled in what we say and do. And we've got to stop being selfish with our time and with our talents. Now, I'm not trying to create a legalism here where we're forming 20 or 30 ministries and you're spending 20 hours a week in the church. What I'm saying is that when we gather together, serve. When we gather together, just don't talk to people just like you. Are you a young person? then talk to someone who's a little bit older sometimes, please. Are you a little older? Then talk to someone who's a little younger. Are you well-educated? Educated Educated so-so? 
Are you white? Are you black? Are you Hispanic? Whatever you might be. Make sure you're making connections with the whole body. The idea is that we grow and we build itself, build ourselves up in love as what? As each part does its work. Verse 7, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. So from there, I know you have grace that allows you to be a blessing. Now we come to verse 16. Now with that grace, let's build, each, build one another. I'm going to get it. <laughs> let's build ourselves up in love as each part does its work. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Praise God for the good shepherd we have in the Lord Jesus. We all come from different flocks, but he calls us together into one flock. And as a good shepherd, he laid his life down only to pick it up again. Only he had that authority. And his sheep hear his voice. If you haven't made a confession of Christ before in your life and you are hearing the voice of the good shepherd, don't hesitate. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of life and forgiveness. And if you're someone who has professed Christ, but you've been laying on the sidelines, brother and sister, God in Christ has given you grace and he's joined you to a body. Don't think like the American that's just always the individual, the individual, my pleasure, my convenience, my time, my gifts, my resources. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Everyone. And so this call to response is it's not a call to respond to nothing. It's a call to respond to the greatest news ever. Father, we just thank you for your holy word. And we thank you for a salvation that's real. It's founded on messianic prophecies and founded upon an apostolic eyewitness that's founded upon your work, Lord Jesus, in your death and your resurrection and in your ascension. Father, we thank you for forgiveness of sins. We thank you for redemption, salvation from, from slavery, salvation from wrath. We thank you for the peace you've given to us in Christ Jesus. We're so thankful for, for a grace that is really grace and not by works or performance or ethnic group, but we're saved by your grace. And with the Lord Jesus, we pray, make us one. In Jesus' name, amen.